everybody, it's John. Thanks for listening to The Hustle. This week we talked to Jimmer Podraski, who was the lead singer of the 80s college rock band, The Rave Ups. Now you may not uh, know who that is by name, but I'm almost positive you've seen them before, because they will be forever immortalized as the band from Pretty in Pink. So there's that scene when everybody goes to that club, and Andrew Dice Clay is the doorman, and Ducky and Blaine kind of face off for the first time. The band playing in that scene is the Rave Ups, and there's a very interesting story about how that band got there to be in that scene, and Jimmer and I talk about that in this interview. We also talk about a lot of other things, and the interview went a very different direction than I was prepared for. I always do a lot of uh, research for these interviews ahead of time, but when Jimmer and I first got on the phone with each other, he mentioned a Huffington Post article about him that had come out last year that I was not aware of. And uh, I wish that I had been, because had I read that thing first, I would have approached this interview very differently. I, As far as I knew, he had basically disappeared for the last 25 years. That's, uh, that's what his website says, that's what most of the information I could find implied. And so I was really diving into his music, ready to talk about the music, ready to talk about, you know, what may have happened to his career. Come to find out there's a very dark and disturbing story, unfortunately, out there about what has gone on with Jimmer these last 25 years. And in fact, he mentions in our interview that the article in the Huffington Post was actually even kind of a Disney version of reality, which would mean this interview is like a PBS Kids version of reality. I could tell while I was talking to him that there was more to this story and that it possibly could have gotten really, really grim, but I didn't feel like I had the right to push him on it. And uh, if, But if I had read that article first, I would have. This interview goes a very different direction. It's not as musical heavy, more so in the second half. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of interesting information out there. Poor Jimmer, such a great songwriter and a great artist, and he's had a rough go these last few years. He's also, you know, seeking some redemption, and I'm happy for him for that. He called me from his home in L.A. I'm I'm not sure if you're familiar with that Huffington Post piece that came out like a year ago. Uh, No. Uh, well, when I released when I released uh, a solo record, yeah, I would be planned. Right, um, I, you know, I knew a lot of people would put a focus on 
Oh, that yeah, that guy from the rave ups. Where the hell yeah. he's been for twenty five years? Uh, right. This this Huffington Post piece got into some pretty heavy stuff, and even that, uh, I wasn't embarrassed by it. But it was the Disney version of what had happened in my life. Oh, so really? As as difficult as it was for people to read uh-huh. uh, and it was difficult for me to read but I also knew oh man this is the this is the PG version yeah. of what went down and wow. a lot of people were you know I, I, I literally only had one friend and she's she's very maternal and protective, and she was like, "Why in God's name would you allow that?" You know, I know it's uh-huh. the Huffington, I know it's the Huffington Post, but still. And I was like, "I don't have anything to hide." You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't, I, I don't see the point of lying about things that occurred, and you know, I would never want to hurt anyone else but i sure. you know i i didn't mind stepping up to bat about things that i had done that were wrong oh, and wow. i and i really i wasn't ashamed of it because i know that i'm not the only person who has had ups and downs in their life and wow. i think uh, I, you know i i i said to her if you listen to some of the songs on the would-be plans, you know, I'm addressing the exact same issues that are talked about in the article. And just, it's just not done in a journalistic way. So for me or for anybody close to me or anybody who might be a fan of the rave ups or a, a fan of this last solo record that I put out, it might've been a, a bit, difficult to read but i never i never got that if anything i got an awful lot of people who responded to it by saying more power to you man you know like like and i like i said i i only got heat from one person and and i and I can understand why she might have wanted to be protective of me because I didn't come across as looking like a great guy. Yeah. You know, my oh life, my, looked, gosh. my life, you know, mapped out in public looked pretty horrible. And it was. I mean, oh. I, you know, there was no, there was no denying that some bad things went down and some heartbreak and all that stuff. And I would have thought, well, geez, I, I I would think that that would only make the record all the more redemptive. Yeah. You know, I, and I, that's what I wanted it to be. You know, I, I, I don't expect, this time that I want to hear anybody talk about that story or those stories anymore. 
if I if I release another record soon, I would rather it just be the music. You yeah, know? yeah. And and not where have you been? And oh my God, what happened to you? And oh, that's terrible. And you know, huh. you know, I I don't want to. I I didn't want to come off as feeling like a just a sad basket case. Sure, and y- sure. And y- and yet I I you know, I kind of was and and part of the reason that the the record was even made was because of the the friends that I had. Yeah. And it it was those friends who saved me, who saved my ass, who got yeah. me back who got me back on track doing what it was that I should have been doing anyway. But it, you know, it wasn't my strength. It wasn't that I had overcome these horrible things in my life and somehow gotten my shit together and done it. It was a story about friends and about Mm. the power of that, you know, and that's the way I saw it. Uh, you know, no matter how shitty my life got, the 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 story about how I came to make this record was a a beautiful one. It was it wasn't sad. It wasn't depressing. It uh-huh. was it was a a story about friends and okay. love okay. and all that kind of wow. crap. You wow. know, so. Huh. Well, see, I didn't. Uh, so, I, I mean, I didn't know that this article existed. I'm looking at it right now. Obviously, I can't read it while we talk, but I'm gonna have to go back and check this out. It sounds like there's most everything I'd want to know is probably in that article. Um, um, well, you know, there was some stuff that I actually got uh, the Huffington Post to take out. Oh, that that didn't have to do with me. They ha- it had to do with my son. Huh. And yeah, I, sure. And I, uh, you know, I didn't want him hurt. I didn't want him coming off as, you know, a bad yeah. guy. Uh, sure. And, you know, yeah. What can I say? Are you, are you able? Uh, so let's just keep going. I mean, we've already kind of kicked it off. Let's just keep going. So, do you? Are you? Um, can you summarize for me? I mean, it sounds like, you know, obviously probably the biggest question I would have for you is where did you go for so long, you know? And um, it sounds like this, there's a fascinating story there that has been documented, and unfortunately I haven't been reading it's it. Not, it's not really a fascinating story. I think it's a it's a... It's a story of what happens when... Life gets in the way, and you know I. Those last, you know, towards the end for the rave ups, I was the only one who was a, a parent in the band. Uh-huh. Um, that relationship went sour pretty quickly at a time when Chance was a, a little boy. He was only a year or so old. Yeah. And when you say that relationship, do you mean with Chance's mom or with the band? Yeah, yeah with Chance's, Chance's mom. mom. And okay. uh, 
you know, it, it was a perfect storm of things. I, I, I desperately wanted to be there for my son. Um, my mom passed away when Chance was about six months old and, or actually about a year old. And then a year later, my father passed away and, uh, that was just about the time, like right before my dad passed away, it was just about the time that Chance's mom and I split up. And we were, you know, we were uh, co-parents. Yeah. You know. Are we it, talking it, about like 1991, 92? Yes, right around okay. there. Okay. Um, right after the Chance record came out, pretty yeah. much. So I suddenly kind of found myself alone. You know, my family, my parents were gone. My oh, grandparents yeah. okay. were gone. And I I also knew that my my interest was changing. And I, and I thought, well, interest you know. Interest in music? Like you're not well, as my, interested in music no, anymore? Well, I mean, my, my feeling was I, I thought I was – I thought I was a damn good songwriter and I and I yeah. thought that and I thought that the Rave Ups were a hell of a band but show yeah. business can you know show business can be tough and that doesn't guarantee any success whether or not I was a good songwriter it it didn't matter and mm-hmm. and the Rave Ups being a good band or not it the bottom line is I thought the world didn't really need any more songwriters, but this mm. kid really needed a dad. Yeah, yeah. And and I never stopped writing. I never. Sure. Uh, it, it's not as if I put the guitar away, and I, you know, if anything, as as Chance grew up, he learned to play, and we would just play together. That's great. Yeah. I mean, that was that was pretty much the only playing I did in that twenty-five year. Yeah. Gap is huh. I wrote in private like I always do and sure. I I played at home. I didn't yeah. do it in public very often. So and let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. How did you then pay your bills? Because I I was I mean a, the Rave Ups were a great band and then they kind of disappear and you, I, I, but you weren't, unfortunately, the rave ups. I don't think, unless you get massive residual checks for the pretty for being in Pretty in Pink. I don't think you you're not still making a lot of money enough to sustain yourself no, on and a child. No, so what are you doing? I, how do, how do you, you know, pay the bills? Well, I years ago when when I sort of walked away from the rave up thing, knowing as time went on that that joint custody thing went from, you know, half, half and half to chance living with me pretty much all the time. Oh, really? Right. So, uh, I, I just walked away from it. I, I knew, well, I, I, I have no interest in being a weekend father Mm-hmm. And and now it seems as though 
you know, life has gotten in the way, and I'm needed even more so because I'm going to have to be yeah. this kid's primary sure. caregiver. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's what I did. I, I, I needed a job. I actually went back to the, uh, the Rave Ups booking agent who was at William Morris, and I asked him if he knew of any jobs at William Morris, and I became a script reader for them for years really? and years and years. And that's, really? what I did, that's what I did to pay the rent and raise my son. And and that was a great job because I did yeah. not have I did not have to be in an office. Sure. I I could work at home. I could be there for chance. I could take him to school and pick him up from school. Yeah. You know, I I didn't have to worry because I didn't really have any support team. I couldn't really yeah. go. You know, I didn't have parents around. I didn't have, you know, family. I, I didn't have a wife. I couldn't right. say, hey, I can't do this. Will you pick Chance up from school mm-hmm. today? So mm-hmm. I had to fi- And luckily, you know, I... I had never read a movie script before, but I I was an English major in college, so I knew what the hell sure. I was doing. Trying to get and, and, right? and I and I liked it, and I did it, and I yeah. did it very well. And they, you know, uh, I like I said, I did it for many, many, many years until the Great Recession occurred in like yeah. 2010, 2009. Yeah. Yeah. And and what happened wasn't that I got fired. It was that a rival agency merged with William Morris and took over William Morris. Oh wow! Yeah, it was you know William Morris was a, was the oldest talent agency in the world. Yeah, it had been, yeah. ar- been around for a hundred and eleven years at this oh, point. This other agency. While a while a big time Hollywood agency had been around for about fifteen, mm-hmm. so when the merger happened, uh, you know I was always told, well, you know they're merging with us. Yeah. So don't worry, your job is fine. You'll probably you'll probably have more work to do, and yet that's not the way it went down. It it yeah. very quickly became this very ugly rape. Yeah. It was like, it was, you know, and everyone from the parking lot attendants to agents to people like me that had yeah. to do with that old order yeah, of right. William Morris were just gone. Huh. So for 17, 17, 18 years or so, you're a script reader for William Morris. That is your primary job. I was I was that not that long because I lost again. I lost my job five or six years ago. Uh, oh, so, but did you start that? Well, okay, so you did that for a while though, and I did that for about a, about twelve years. Okay, okay, and uh, I mean maybe, maybe I know a little nothing, more than that. I know nothing about that. I mean, do Swift do script readers make good money? Are you reading no. a script no, today? I, Are you offering I, changes? What do you do? I I got paid per script, so it oh. was really it was really up to me to hustle, yeah, to read. And I would say in the you know the twelve 
plus years that I was there, I I probably read over ten thousand scripts. Really? Do you and, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to. Money is a topic of this podcast, but it's a sensitive issue for many people. So if I ask something you're not comfortable with, just tell me. But can you give me an idea of what you would have been paid per script? Well, when I first got there, every reader who worked there were, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a higher gun kind of thing. Ah, okay. When the when the guy who was the head of the story department at William Morris realized that I knew how to read and I knew how to write. And I also knew my movies. Sure. I, you know, I actually had that going for me, too, in that I, I, I'm a fairly big movie fan. So yeah. I yeah. – and when I started there, everybody got paid 50 bucks a script. Um, that was it. Um, so you had to hustle to get as many scripts as you could. And eventually, I, you know, I never asked for a raise. I apparently was the the first reader in the history of William Morris to get an unsolicited raise. Wow. And I, and I was a little taken aback by that because I sure. knew that there were, re- there were only about 10 or 12 readers down there reading everything. Uh-huh. And I and I knew most of them had been there a lot longer than I had been there, so suddenly I was getting paid more money than them per script. Wow! And I and uh, you know and I had to kind of keep it quiet. Sure, sure. Because I was told to keep it quiet. Yeah. Um, Are you able that, to sustain yourself though, and chance on no. the money you're making from reading oh. scripts? Well, when when I was reading for them, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, good. Okay. Even at fifty bucks a script, you're you're turning through these often enough. You can pay your rent. You can put food on the well, table. You're you know, okay. I'm. I, you know, when I first got there, I was having to turn over twenty scripts a week, so, oh. which is a which is a thousand bucks a week. Yeah. Okay. And, okay. And that's that's not bad. But as time went on, I got a lot back more efficient at doing it. It took uh-huh. less time and I was getting paid more. Eventually I got Good. everyone. I think all the readers eventually got 70 bucks a script by the time okay. I think I left there. But again, I, I was still able to maintain that, but I was actually having to work less hours of the week because I had it down at that point. Yeah. Right, I right. could I could easily read that not many scripts, and it wasn't as time consuming as it was when I first okay. started out doing it. Okay, and are I just are you better like, at it. right? And are they handing are scripts mailed to you, and are they scripts that are sort of um, in phases of production, and you're making like I don't like this, take this part out, or you what are you offering? What does a script I, reader offer to the process? I I would not only have to, in one page, basically tell the entire story of a 120-page script or whatever, mm. the you know, but I would also have to write a page about whether or not it was worthwhile. 
you know. Yeah. You know, and again, I wasn't reading for a studio, so this was not about green lighting. Okay, yeah. It was not about green lighting these projects. It was about I read for a, a lot of different agents, and and those agents all represented a lot of different actors okay. and directors. So there were times that I was reading a script specifically for a certain actor. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Um, because it, it was his agent who had me. I mean, it's funny. I don't know how. But for some reason, I became the go-to reader for certain agents down there. Oh, and, really? Yeah, and it was always, you know, well, you know, whatever script comes in, I want this guy to uh-huh. do the coverage. And interesting. And one of the one of the agents happened to be probably, you know one of the more powerful black agents in Hollywood. Oh really? And and he represent and he represented really heavy African American sure. actors, directors, producers. So are you reading primarily those types of scripts then? Well, I mean it was funny because at one point I kept getting all these scripts, you know, Tyler uh, Perry Tyler Perry scripts uh, and you know, a, a lot of booty call type scripts yeah, and right. a lot of his, historical dramas about, you know, uh-huh. slaves and, you know, <laughs> a, a lot a lot of really heavy, violent hip-hop right. dramas. And, uh-huh. you know, and I finally said to my boss down there, I was like, does this guy know that I'm like a middle-aged white guy from Pittsburgh and I'm not, <laughs> you know, because, and he said it, does, it, it doesn't matter to him. Yeah. It all it ma- all that matters to him is your opinion. And it's yeah. funny because every, I think Tyler Perry probably was his biggest client because Tyler Perry sure. was is one of the more Huge. successful, yeah. yeah. But I, I had to read that crap and That's I funny. and I passed on every single one of them. I Oh I, man. I flat out said this is just horrible. This Right. Is just, and it didn't, you know. Man, I mean, were you wrong? <laughs> well, no, I mean. Well, you know, in terms of business, right. right. I have to admit, I've never seen a Tyler Perry movie. My, but um, my I hear job, they're successful. My job was not to be a brilliant businessman. My job was to tell them what the script was about and to also offer my opinion as to whether or not it was worthwhile. Okay. You know, I mean, you don't really need a professional script reader to say Spider-Man five, should we do it or not? Uh Because it's going to get done. It doesn't really matter what the script is. My job I thought was to find those scripts that weren't going to get a fair shake because they weren't going to generate a billion dollars. Right. Do you remember any scripts specifically that really knocked you out that went oh, on yeah. to become, you know, touchstones? Um, I I do remember vividly the story of having to read this one particular script for this black agent. 
Um, and it was a it was a very difficult script to read, really? but it was really good, huh. and it was really well done. And I don't think a lot of writers, including big Hollywood writers, realize that if they turn a script into an agency for coverage and that reader passes on it and they resubmit it, it almost nine times out of ten, it goes back to the reader that passed on it. Mm. So in other, in other words, I would read a lot of rewrites of scripts, a lot. Okay. And, and this one particular script, I read ten different drafts of it, at least, maybe twelve. Yeah. Okay. And it, it didn't really change. I liked it and recommended it from the very first time. So uh-huh. the the minor changes in the script didn't really change my opinion as to whether or not this was a a worthwhile project. And I, you know, and I didn't mince any words. I was like this isn't going to be everybody's cup of tea. Uh-huh. And this is not going to make comic book money. You're killing you know? me, Jimmer. What was it? You're going to tell me. Well, I'll tell you, I went in to, to see my, my boss who, you know, when I would, sometimes when I would go in and pick up scripts, I would stop by his office and we would just, you know, shoot the breeze about stuff. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Usually, about, usually about movies and scripts because that's all he ever thought about. But okay. he, he uh, I said to him, I said, look, I, I don't know what to do. I, I you know, I've read this draft. It was probably like the eighth or ninth time I had read it. And I, and I said, it, it, it keeps coming back to me and nothing really changes. And I, I do really like it, but I don't know what to say anymore. I, I don't want to turn in the same coverage that I turned in before and collect my money. And that feels kind of, you know, but yeah, I don't know what to do. And he said, well, what's it, you know, what's the story about? I said, it, it's about this, you know, morbidly obese black teenage girl who Uh-oh. is pregnant with her father's child. Got it for the for the second time, and oh, he kind of looked at me, and he was like, "Well, God, why would anybody want to see that?" And I said, "Because it's good, right? Because it's because right. it's really good." And and eventually, it got yeah. made, and and yes. It was called yeah. Push when I read yeah. it. Yeah, right, right. Um, a lot of times that happens. I know that I I, I read Million Dollar Baby and, oh, wow. recommend, and recommended it, but it was called Rope Burns. Oh, wow. Uh, that was the title of the script. Interesting. So. Wow. So, wow. Again, you know, I figured that was – that was what I was supposed to do. I was supposed sure. to I was supposed to find those things that were off the beaten path. Yeah. And you know, again, I tried really hard to keep the world from 
you know, Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo, but I couldn't. <laughs> you did you your know. best. Right, I, right. I, oh, I did my best, man. I think yeah, I, was, yeah. I was as mean to that script as I could possibly be. Well, I still got read that too. Wow, no, that's but, crazy. You know, some stuff is, you know, that's Hollywood. There's a lot of yeah, nepotism of in Hollywood. Of course, But yeah. if you're a but again, you know, if you're a screenwriter trying to get your foot in the door, it's not too bad to have great coverage at yeah, some yeah. big agency or some studio because that might make somebody act. I do know that after reading that precious script 10, 12 times, I started to realize those next, those last few drafts that were coming in Suddenly, Oprah Winfrey and Tyler mm-hmm. Perry, their names were on it. Yeah. You know? Yep. So yep. Pe- people were paying attention. Wow. And, you know, wow. again, I get paid the exact same amount of money whether I hate the script or I don't. Sure. Sure. So it, 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 I didn't have a dog in the fight. Right. You know? You're just getting and, paid for and, your thoughts. And I also was probably the only reader down there who had no interest in being a screenwriter. Oh, I was going to ask you about that. Okay, so you're you're comfortable doing what you're doing. You're not secretly shoving your own scripts in there or writing on the side or anything like that? No. In I mean, fact, no one would fault you if you did, but it sounds like you no, didn't. No, in fact, it was, it, was, it was just the opposite. I mean, oh. I, had, I had worked there for years and had yeah. probably – had probably built up that thing of I was probably one of the top readers there. I was the guy that, that heavyweight agents would have do their stuff. And I remember my boss said to me, Hey, one of the readers, one of the new guys I just, you know, hired, uh, he stopped me and he came, came in and he, he asked to, you know, what you were doing here. Mm-hmm. And I, I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the guy said to me, do you know who that guy is? <laughs> and and my boss said, no. And he goes, that guy used to be like in a really fucking like amazing band. He's, yeah, he, killer he band, was, right? He was the shit back in yeah. time. And my, my boss had no idea that I was ever in a band, that I was <laughs> a songwriter, nothing. Right. And then... He started to get nosy about it uh-huh. and started to look into it and started to find the music. Yeah. And he actually called me up one day. I was I was home working and he called me up and out of the blue, you know, and I I never get calls from anybody down there. Uh-huh. Um, so it was kind of, I was like, well, I wonder why he's calling. And he said, tell me again why you work here. <laughs> and I was like, because I have a son. Yeah and, yeah. and and my boss, even after he heard the music and sort of urged me to return to it, did say over and over again, well, you know, you're obviously a good writer. Why don't you write uh-huh. a script? Yeah. And I said, I, I don't have a story to tell. And he goes, how about your own? Oh, wow. Yeah, and, true. Yeah. And I said, oh, and, I, and I, of course, I looked at him and I said, so the story is that I end up as a reader reading movie scripts yeah, at the Hollywood. Right, agency. is that how the movie's going to end? Would and you make that movie? Right. And he 
And he said it doesn't have to end that way. In fact, you can make it end any way you want to. So let's, uh, I mean, let's go back to the music for a minute. Although I feel like there's more to the story, and I want to come back to it in a second. But I, we, we got to get the music in here because that's, that's what most people love you for. And uh, typically, when when I do these podcasts, I always kick off with kind of a story of how I discovered the band, or maybe an anecdote about them. And yours is a very specific one. I. Uh, so among my friends, I'm kind of the guy who's like the idiot savant about music, right? Uh, John, who sings this song, or what, when did this album come out, or whatever? And I'm like, I'm that guy who has all that trivial wow. information in my head. So a buddy of mine, those guys. I'm sure you do. I'm sure you do. So a few years ago, uh, one of my good friends in, in, introduces me to another guy who would become a good friend of mine named Ben. And uh, Ben kind of tests me. And he's like, John, who sings that song? Um, I don't know the name, but it's You Lost a Lot When You Lost Me. Who sings that? I was like, oh, that was the Rave Ups. And, the, oh, the Rave Ups. Okay, I don't know. Whatever happened to the Rave Ups? I'm like, well, I'm not exactly sure, but here's a bit of trivia for you. You may notice in 16 Candles that Molly Ringwald walks around with a binder in her arms that says the Rave Ups on it. Really, I had no idea. Yeah, and they were also the band performing in the club in Pretty and Pink. Oh, really? Wow. And to make matters even deeper, uh, the lead singer, Jimmy Podraski, had a son with, the, with Molly Ringwald's sister, which is probably what led to all these connections happening. And so that me telling him that story, that level of detail kind of blew his mind. And so it became this kind of like party trick. So we would be at parties or we'd be talking with other friends. And hey, John, John, tell them the rave-up story. Tell them the rave-up story. You know what I mean? And so you've been this kind of, you guys have been this thing that pops up throughout my life uh, for years now. And um, so I guess, I mean, let's just, you're, you're going to be immortalized, whether you want to be or not, as the band from Pretty in Pink. And I'm curious how you feel about those associations with those John Hughes movies, um, that being your signature moment. What do you think about that stuff? Um, and you can correct I, me if I have my story wrong, by the way. Feel free. I I did have a child with Molly's sister. That's Chance. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, I, we were the band in Pretty in Pink. Um, yep. The irony of that is when Pretty in Pink came out in 1986, um, the Rave Ups' first album, Town and Country, was big college radio hit mm-hmm. and big critical hit. Yeah. Uh, but we still were, you know, poor musicians. Mm-hmm. And we all worked at A&M Records. Uh-huh. Four of us, all four of us worked at A&M Records and we were the mail boys. Mm-hmm. Terry and I, the guitar player and I, we ran the merchandising warehouse and the drummer and bass player were the mail boys who delivered mail on the A&M lot. So, we're mail boys at A&M at the time that Pretty in Pink is filmed. And, and, John Hughes wants us in the movie. So 
we we filmed for two days. We all had to ask our bosses at A and M if we could take the day off work. Right. We we did two songs in the movie and they filmed yep. it. Um and then the movie came out. And the soundtrack came out. That's and, what I want to ask you about. And the horrible thing, the you know, the the tragic irony in the Rave Up story was at the peak of our our being a new thing. Yeah. We should have been on that soundtrack, but a Why kept, weren't you? Because we were the male boys. Is we that not, why? Yes. Never we mind that you're one of the most prominently featured songs. I mean, you're in you're in the movie, and they can't right. put Positively Lost Me or um, Shut Up, or that's the name of the other one, right? Rave Up, Shut Up, yeah. Or Rave Up, yeah, Rave Up, Shut Up. bothered to put either of those on the soundtrack? No, and just because and, you don't have a high enough profile? Well, they they did not see us as a real band. They saw us oh. as, the male, as the male boys. Oh, and, and I'm sure some of them were aware that the reason that John Hughes even knew of us was because we were friends with Molly. Uh-huh. And 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 we were friends with Molly because I was dating Molly's sister. That's right, really, right. you know. And again, sure. Molly was a kid. She was like 16. Right. You know, she was really a kid. She wasn't some 22-year-old playing a teenager. Right. She was right. a fucking teenager. Yeah. You know, and yeah. uh, it was devastating. The, the way, uh, because we, we felt for sure, well, at the very least, we might not be able to quit our day jobs. Yeah. But we're at least going to be on this soundtrack, which, by the way, went on to sell millions of copies. Yep, I know. Caroline laughs and it's raining all day. She loves to be one of the girls. Lives in the place in the side of our lives. But nothing is ever put straight. She turns herself round and she smiles and she says, This is it, that's the end of the joke.
And, and to make matters worse, I can vividly remember having to mail out the posters for that soundtrack, and there, oh. there was every name except for the Raven. You're back in the mailroom mailing merch and swag and whatever out to we're still in the mail everywhere room. and you're still in the mailroom and you're in that movie well i'll tell you there were two guys who were most responsible at a&m for making sure that we did not make the final cut and the horrible thing is just this past year one of the guys was struck while riding his bicycle and was killed. Oh. And 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 just you know because I have a you know a a somewhat gallows sense of humor, I called up the rave ups and I said, yeah. "One down, one down, one to go." <laughs> And only the rave-ups knew yeah. that thing. Only they yeah. got the thing. And sure enough, about six months later, the other guy who was no really who was really the big reason also passed away. Oh, my gosh. And the weird thing is on Facebook, I would see these people just, oh, man, he was one of the good guys in the yeah. music. Oh, what a yeah. great man. Well, you know, the music business will never see the likes of him again. And yeah. me, I'm looking at this shit having a whole yeah. different bent on it. And of, of course, course, I was too much of a gentleman to ever really say who he was yeah. and what, yeah. he, what he had done. But the four Rave Up guys knew, and we, not, we didn't celebrate anybody's death, but it was sure. sort of like, yeah, you know what, fuck them. Yeah, yeah, totally. That you got would have, screwed, right? That would have that would have been a game changer for that totally. band at that point in our career. That would have been, and and to tell you the truth, after that we languished for a couple of years before we got off of that indie label and signed yeah. with Epic. But we lost critical time. You we did know, at, at, yeah. at a. At the point when we should have been striking while the iron was yeah. hot, we were just stuck in limbo. Were, were bigger labels not crashing oh, no. down your door? As soon as they oh, see yeah. you in a major successful movie, are they not coming over thinking, we got to snap these guys up and they capitalize did. right they now? Did. But that little label that had us under contract was playing some serious hardball with these people. Oh. And you have to remember. What the rave-ups were doing in the mid to late 80s was not popular. No, that was I know. Not, that was, you know, there was know. no Americana genre no. back then. There this was no alt-country. I get the news and you can beat it. I got a right to know. One more killing.
sort of like, hey man, you know, we got we got the tiger by the tail. We can charge yeah. whatever we want. So you know, one by one, each one of them just said, no, we're not paying that kind of money for a band that, you know, even though we like them, yeah, this is this yeah. is going to be a hard sell. Right. This is this is not what's popular right now. They're not a hair metal band, and they're not a synth pop band. Right. But, you know, I mean, I was thinking about it today. I've been re-listening. I've had your albums for years, and I've been re-listening to them, along with your solo album, which is great, by the way, uh, to kind of prepare for our conversation. And a couple of different thoughts came to my mind. Number one, and this is just an offhand comment, I, I was thinking about it today when I was listening to the Book of Your Regrets again, and uh, I thought, it's a real shame that the Raybucks decided to take the 90s off when that would have been the decade most agreeable to their style. You know what I mean? And then um, secondly, I was thinking, actually, I lost my train of thought. You tell me what you think about that first comment. I'll tell no, you. I, I, well, I mean, I had an awful lot of people say to me throughout the 90s while I was basically Mr. Mom and, yeah. uh, you know, just a dad. Uh, Wow, you know, you guys were like four or five two years just too early, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. And I didn't want to hear that crap. I, I yeah. you know, I know that when I would turn on the radio, I would hear an awful lot of bands that sounded hauntingly familiar to what we were doing years before. Yeah, um, and suddenly well, they were big. And not to, I mean, I don't. When I think back to the eighties. I that was a very that was a big time for like that kind of heartland pre Americana rock. I mean, not that I would put you in the same uh, bucket as like Mellencamp or Bruce Hornsby or something like that. But that stuff is Americana, and that's rising. That's selling millions. And then wow. even littler bands like the Hooters. She was a Again, I was thinking today, you, you guys even sound like some of those British bands like The Church or The Alarm that was sort toured, of doing those kinds toured, of things. We toured with The Church, as a matter of fact. Oh, I bet. Well, that would have been a great double bill. But, you know, I mean, these other bands are having some success with variations of kind of what you're doing. I'm just well, wondering why it was you specifically that didn't make it. And then I, I wondered if it's because your voice sounds a little bit like Mojo Nixon. 
Like maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a, maybe it takes it one step too far or something. I don't know. But the the songs are so good. I don't know. I I I don't know what the answer to that is. I know that um, I blamed myself an awful lot because I knew that the Rave Ups were a great band. I knew that the songs I had written were really good songs. And I knew that the records that were released were not shitty records. They were yeah. well-made records. They they sounded good. So <laughs> I the only thing I could think of was my voice, that that was what people didn't like. Because I yeah. couldn't think... I couldn't think, oh, well, it's because the records sounded shitty or no. oh, the band wasn't very good or the right. production was – none of the – when I would go down the list, it was like, no, it couldn't have been that. The only thing it could be was me. Yeah. It was, it was me. And, I, you know, that's – look, that's something that I have no control over. I mean, sure. for one – the one thing that plagues me as a singer is also my strength. Yeah. I mean, I I'm not I know I'm not you know a a powerhouse vocalist who's going to knock somebody out by the vocal gymnastics that I'm going to pull off. Yeah. I I know that I don't I don't really try to sound like anybody but me. No, you and, have such a unique voice. And I can, especially for I that time under, period, I can I see can why people may not have known what to do with you. Right. Right. I, you know, and I, again, I didn't blame Capitol and Columbia and Warner Brothers for eventually just going, no, man, we're not going to spend $250,000 on sure. this band that, you know, it's just... And again, uh, like so much of everything in life, it was timing. You know, yeah. our ti- our timing in the sense that we were bound to this contract until we could get out of it. Yeah. And you know, so so in 1986 and 87, you know, we languished when we should have been yeah, capitalizing. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, I, yeah. And I, you know, again, when we finally signed with Epic, I, I was proud of those records that we made with Epic. I, you know, yeah. I, I, I have no problem with. Oh, I guess we gave up. No. But again, even when we signed with Epic, I don't think Epic had any idea what to do with us. Maybe not. Yeah. They really, they really. I mean, they, they they sort of hung in there because they knew all the critics say this is the shit. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so let's sign them. But I, but I think, you know, once you get into that machine, you sort of have to fit into a certain marketing plan. Right. And, and if you don't, well, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there wasn't an easy fit for them. Do you think that if, um, I mean, you put out three solid albums, and in my in my opinion, they get better as they go, right? Chance 
is nearly perfect in my mind. That if those band, if those albums had been more successful and there had been more kind of wind in your sails, do you think you still would have stepped away from music to raise chance and kind of try a different thing? Were you burnt out? Was that the end of your artistic oh, no. streak, or no, was it more just, you know I, circumstances? It was circumstances. I mean, if okay. I was, if if those records had been a hit, if Positively Lost Me had been on the soundtrack of. Yeah. Pretty in Pink. I could have, I could have walked away from that day job, remained a single father, and figured out a way financially to make it work. Yeah. But yeah. I wasn't in a, I wasn't in a financial position to say, wow, maybe I can hire somebody to come with us and be on the road. He can be with me. Right. No, success would have allowed that. Yeah. But that's not what happened. So it was, well, I can't go out on the road. Yeah. And, yeah. I, and I need to be here for him. So what do other know, bands do? I mean, why couldn't I, and forgive me if this is a personal question, just tell me to go away or whatever. Can Beth or that's her name, right? Beth Ringwald. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can Beth watch chance while you're, I mean, she, she knows she's she, with she, a musician. Could her she, family do it? Can mm -hmm. something, she wasn't in a position, uh, and I and I I just for uh, there's more to that story for, that you don't for, want to talk about for, probably for right? not for not wanting to hurt yeah. her. Uh, okay. She just we'll, we'll we'll just say that she was not in okay. a position to be a mom. Yeah. Okay. And and that's all you know. Yep. That's, and that, I kind of. I kind of gathered that. Okay. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, now let me ask you this: Why is your why are these rape up albums not on iTunes? In fact, well, town and country, uh, is. Town and country is. This is what I find interesting. I hope this doesn't offend you. I found Book of Your Regrets and Chance in like dollar bins years mm -hmm. and years ago. Yeah. But 
I have town and country sells for like twenty, thirty bucks on Amazon, mm-hmm. right? Because it's out of print. Yet that's the one that's on iTunes, and none of them are on Spotify that I can find anyway. So what's the story? Why is your stuff not more easily accessible? Um, well, the the town and country, I had been I had control of to get it up on iTunes. Uh, I don't have any control over the Epic records. It would, in other words, it would be it would have to be somebody at Epic. Who put those old records? Well, someone—that's got to be someone's job, right, to do that. But, 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 why, but, but why would they do that with a band that was, you know, twenty-five, thirty years ago? Why would they well, do that? Weirder well, stuff on there. I thought weirder stuff. Well, that's oh, not, you know. Well, you know, there was a label that licensed those Epic records from Epic. Um, it's a it's like a rhino type label from the south, oh. uh, and they put them out as a double disc. They yeah, I'm them. looking at it right now. Right. Yeah. And I don't know where any of that money. I I never saw any of that oh, money. Wow. I Boy. saw that it. I saw that it came out because it shows fans would come up and have me sign it, and I was like, yeah. What the hell is this? Yeah. Yeah. So I you know, Book of Your Regrets right now resells for like fourteen forty eight used on Amazon. And I bought it for like a dollar. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I will never know. 
Yeah, yeah, that's tough. So what, what then motivates you eventually to put out the would-be plan? I didn't even know about until recently, actually. Um, but it's just as well, good I, and solid as I, your other stuff. I I wanted to make another record with the Rave Ups. They weren't interested. Okay. And, um, now, again, flash forward 25 years, I was the only one who was a father back when I walked away from it, and I don't think they took that too well. But yeah. it was the only thing that could be done. And they knew that. It sucked, but it was just reality. Right. Um, they're all fathers now. Of course. You know? Yeah. And it's a different thing. So I was ready to make another Rave Ups record. And, again, I would refer to what happened. Yeah. And you probably would need to read that story to get I'll read it. an idea of what happened. But okay. eventually, you know, stuff got very, very, very bad. And oh, between you and I, the Rave Ups? No, no. Oh, no. I just you meant my, between you and your bandmates. I was going to say that's no, because there was there was no Rave Ups really. Okay, yeah. You know, I, I would okay. I would see them maybe once a year, and we would get along great because they're my brothers. I love sure. them. Yeah. Um, but as a band, that we weren't a band anymore. Right, and right, right. and when I would hear them talk, it was like we should we should get the rights to this and reissue this old record. And you know what we ought to do? We ought to take the best songs from all those records and re-record them and yeah. release them ourselves. And I didn't have any interest in that. I I yeah. was a, I'm a songwriter. I wrote those songs. The Rave Ups did one hell of a job recording them, and I have no interest in redoing sure. it. You know, like, why would I re-record Positively Lost Me? That is what it is. I'll play it live, 
if you want to hear it, I play it all the time. I have to play it. Every time right. I play, I have to play it. Of course, I don't mind course. that, but I'm not. I'm not interested in re-recording it. I wanted yeah. to record new songs, right. and they didn't seem to be into that. And so that led me to, you know, people closest to me saying, "You got to forget about the rave ups." You got, you know, and I resisted that for a long time. I, I didn't really want to be a solo artist because I yeah. identified with being in a band and I was lucky enough to find people who were more than happy to be my band. Sure. And I'm thankful for them because they were great. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't know them from Adam and that was a whole new experience for me. You know, I, I was the odd man out. They all knew each other. They knew the engineer in the studio. I was the one who didn't know anybody. But I had to, you know, I had to, I had to do my best because these guys were pros. They didn't screw screw around. You know, I mean, I love the rave ups, but, you know, what, what it would take the rave ups two weeks to do in the studio it would take these guys two or three days. Sure. Without even ever hearing the songs before. Right, right. With no rehearsal, none whatsoever. Just play it. So every, I, you know. I, yeah, I, I was seeing though on on YouTube. There's some video clips of you guys performing as the rave ups, I believe. Uh, like there were some that were from last year. So do you guys play like the occasional? reunion show is it one of those things where you know some promoter kind of brings you some money or is it how do you how often do you play together if ever or when you do is it you with a bunch of other guys and you just call yourselves the rave ups how does that stuff work um i rarely play with the rave ups uh i kind of put a stop to it because um well, when you know when the record came out, and everybody heard it, suddenly the rave ups wanted to re-enter my life. You know, uh, interesting. And well, after your after your solo album comes out, they come kind of sniffing back around. Yes, when I would play live, I was learning the thing of how to play with strangers yeah that you're gonna you're you know you don't have a band that you're gonna hit the road with and every night you're gonna hone your craft what you're gonna have to learn to do is play with gunslingers sure sure you know hired like, hands hey, yeah right you show yeah. up you play you get paid you yep. leave yeah and and that's what I mean. I literally, you know, in a way, kind of did the Chuck Berry thing, where I right. got in the car, or I got on the plane with a fucking guitar, uh-huh. and I went places, and I used different bands. Yeah. So are you so, still doing that now? What do you do now? Are you? I mean, what's your I'm job? Make, I'm making another record right now. You um, are. And that's sort of my priority. 
to get okay. that done. Yeah. Do you? How do you sustain yourself while making this album? Do you play uh, gigs? I live very, very frugally on uh, what little I made touring through the year. I mean, okay. I, I, I don't make a dime when I play in Los Angeles because, you know, but yeah. I can go to other, I can go to other parts of the country and do house concerts and, yeah. you know, and I, and I don't mind doing that. Uh, Mitch was very smart when he told me, you're going to have to learn to adapt. So sometimes yeah. it might just be you, your guitar and your harmonica, and that's it. And right. sometimes you're going to be with a band you've never met before. Right. And you're just going to have to like learn that that's the way it is. And it terrified me, but it turns out that it was great because I was lucky enough to always be surrounded by people who were really good and they sure. wanted to be there. I would imagine, the shows, right? And the shows were great. Nice, nice. Uh, well, good. I think, I mean, I think I pretty much asked everything I wanted to ask. Um, I, uh, I, I mean, basically, I just wish you the best. I was so happy. Well, thank you, man. Sure. I was so happy to find out just recently, within the last couple of weeks, that you had a solo album out there. And then I was even more happy to listen to it and know that it's just as high quality, just as solid as any of the Rave Up albums. upon the wrong side of my life, but now that you are gone, the other side is mine. The chairs are on the ceiling and the walls are painted blue. Well, I would surely sing your song if I could only hear the tune, but right now I'm just singing on the far left side of you. And well, uh, you know, you're still out there doing it, right? It, and it was, you know, it was mixed by the guy who produced those Epic records. For the, oh, know, that makes could, sense. That makes that sense. David, David Leonard produced Chance and Book of Your Regrets, and uh, I had him on board to mix it, like, which made Mitch very happy because he said, you know, you know David Leonard? I said, yeah, he produced the Rave Up records. He goes, you think he would do it? And I said, I bet he would. Yeah. And he did. So. That's great. That's great. And he's going to um, do this one, too. So. Killer. When's this one coming out, then? Uh, I still have to sing the vocals, and then it'll be sent to David in Nashville. And uh, I, uh, the answer is I'm not really sure when, because... I, again, it's a very, very small and tight budget. Yeah. Everybody, everybody who works on it, just like the last record, did it at, you know, the, the family right. rate, including David Leonard. And now, is the, label pay, is the label putting all this money up front to pay for this album, or are you paying there, for it out of pocket? There, there is no label. Okay, that's what I said. There is no label. So you, it's your money. 
you've set it aside, you've budgeted. This is again totally hypothetical. No, I have fifty I, uh, grand uh, uh, to put out now. No, I, if I had fifty grand, I'd be I'd be thrilled. Okay. I, uh, this this was this record was financed by the the guy who flew me out to Jersey. Oh, wow! He put he the 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 would be plans was financed by my childhood friend. No way. If you read that article, it will tell you exactly what happened. Okay. Yes. Okay. Um, and so he put up the $10,000 that we needed to go in and record it and wow. do it. And and this time, this heavyweight lawyer from Philadelphia was the one who said, I want to be involved in making another record. What do I, yeah. What can I do? And I said, you can give you can give me money. And he said, how much? Man. And I said, this much. And he wrote me a check, and that was the end of it. Uh, and again, I you know, I'm still going to have to raise money to promote the damn record. Sure, be- sure. Because fifteen thousand dollars doesn't go very far when yeah. you're, you know, studio time and mixing time and yeah. paying the yeah. musicians and. It it goes pretty fast, and, uh, but I knew that it could be done because it was the same budget for the would-be plans, yeah, and the would-be yeah. plans came out just fine. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Oh, man. See, this is one of the reasons why i got to be rich, Jimmer. Maybe you feel yeah, this way, you too. I want to yeah. be rich so I can pay for you to come over to my house and uh, just be, be a rock star, and I can just bask you in go. your... In there your you go. star for a minute. <laughs> well, let's, oh, I'd let's love hope it. you get rich. Yeah, all let's right, hope. Man. All of us, right? Yeah. Classic. All right. Well, good. Thanks so much for talking to me, Jimmer. I, I, no I'm problem. in shock. I can't believe I'm talking to this guy that I've admired for so long. Well, I'm, so. I'm glad that it worked out, and it was my pleasure. I knew a girl who was All right, there you have it, Jimmer Podraski. Poor guy, right? I mean, he's obviously super talented. He's an excellent songwriter. He's a smart guy. He goes to Carnegie Mellon, and yet he's had a really rough go. And it's just not fair sometimes. But more than anything, I am just really glad he's back to making music because that's what he's good at. I love his stuff. So I'm really happy that it's back out there, and I hope he gets enough success that it helps him pay those bills. That's what we talk about in this podcast. How do you pay the bills? I really hope that he makes it. All right, next week we have a very big and compelling interview with Christopher Thorne, who's the guitarist for Blind Melon. That's all I have to say, and you know what the story is in your mind. You are suddenly catapulted, and you achieve worldwide fame and success. You become rich and uh, famous, and just on the cusp of things kind of Continuing on, the face of your band dies suddenly of a drug overdose. What do you do with the rest of your life? Christopher and I talk heavily about those moments after Shannon Hoon died, what it meant to Christopher, what he kind of choices and decisions he made with his life, 
how he's picked back up the pieces, and where he is now. Super, super fascinating, obviously. That's a super compelling story. Now, this is the part of this uh, podcast where I, I encourage everybody to get on iTunes and write us a review. Not enough people are doing that. I don't know if you realize this, but that's how you get ranked, recommended. That's how your name kind of pops up in searches and things like that. Personally, I don't even care if you leave us a good review, but we need more reviews. That's how these things work. Please find us on Twitter. We've acquired a ton of new uh, Twitter followers lately. Thankfully, this is being retweeted to other people. We're getting our names out there, but find us at The Hustle Pod. Facebook, like our Facebook page. And as always, send me a note at thehustlepod at gmail.com if you have ideas of people you want me to talk to in the future. Uh, And if you just want to communicate or send us a message on Facebook, whatever. We just really want to interact with our listeners. Thanks, everybody. Oh, last but not least, huge thanks to Aaron Syrett, as always, for producing this podcast. It doesn't work without Aaron. Thanks, everybody.